0: Hello, this is Daniel, host of the Particular Baptist Podcast. This episode was streamed and recorded at Covenant Reform Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia by our very own co host, Sean Cheatham. I hope you are edified by this message.
1: Uh, all right by way of announcements I've been informed that there was a slight issue with the schedule and uh, both next week and the 30th will be on Christian Liberty uh yes on Christian Liberty taught by Jim Heilman so slight correction that needs to be made there accidentally skipped over uh, 523. But anyway, before we begin today's lesson, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Our righteous Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here together to uh, go through this confession of faith. We ask that uh, you would help us to understand, Father, that you would help me to teach well in a manner that honors you and that uh, the truth would be proclaimed. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so this week will be... Part two of chapter 20. Chapter 20 is uh, titled, if I can actually get to it, um, of the gospel and the extent of grace thereof. And um, the theme of this chapter is the special revelation of the gospel. So this is week two. Um, Last week, we uh, covered uh, paragraphs one and two of the chapter. And today we will cover paragraphs three and four. And as promised last week, I'll finish uh, question one, which was the outline of the chapter. And just by way of reminder, the first two paragraphs were uh, the inauguration of the revelation of the gospel and the necessity of the revelation of the gospel. And uh, now paragraphs three and four are paragraph three, the sovereignty of this revelation. And that's broken into three parts the assertion of this sovereignty, the implication of the sovereignty and the result of this sovereignty. And then paragraph four is the sufficiency of this revelation, broken into two parts, the assertion of its sufficiency and the qualification of its sufficiency. Um, So I think actually question seven is a a good review question of what we went over last week. Uh, So we're gonna skip to question seven and then we'll go back to question six. But question seven is, is the special revelation of the gospel necessary to salvation scripturally support your answer? So uh, to anybody who wants to give a brief recap of last week, is special revelation of the gospel necessary to salvation, or can we get it through other means? Oh, I have a scripture that supports that. hmm Romans 1.16, the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation. Mm-hmm. Amen. (laughs) Anybody else want to comment before I go in? All right. So yes, obviously that is correct. Um, Natural revelation is insufficient to salvation. Romans 1 tells us that all men know there is a God, but nowhere is the gospel contained in natural revelation. In order to be saved, we must believe in the person and work of Christ, and you're not going to be able to find that in nature. That's just, it's something that has to be revealed to us. Um, when Paul defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says the following, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto us this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So Paul is going through what the gospel is and saying that this is the means by what you were saved. And then he declares what the gospel is. It's the belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And obviously you can't can't look to the stars and get that that, uh, message. And even more uh, critically, he keeps tying this to the scriptures. He says how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures obviously the scriptures are found in the scriptures. So, um, we, uh, that's, that's where we would find them. Also, I forgot to mention, we are recording for the podcast today. So if anybody doesn't want to be on the podcast, don't say anything, but otherwise you'll be on the podcast. Um, so yeah, um, we need that the message of salvation is contained in the gospel and that is only found, uh, in the word of God. Um, Thus, as we uh, learned last week, we are inoculated against the errors of deism and other forms of liberalism that men are saved apart from the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word is absolutely necessary for men to be saved. It is God's appointed means by which the gospel comes and the knowledge of salvation comes to people. So now backtracking to question six, this will be where we start going over some new stuff. Um, Question number six is How has the gospel been uh, deprecated by some Orthodox teachers of irresistible grace? And um, you'll see it. Uh, some people treat it as if the Holy Spirit would regenerate without the gospel, and thus people can be saved prior to faith. They're in a, they're in a regenerate state, but they have yet to actually encounter the message of the gospel and believed. And you'll, you'll really run into this in hyper Calvinistic circles. And that leads to all sorts of uh, issues, including the idea that the elect can be saved apart from faith. Uh, because if you can be regenerate before faith, then why do you even need faith in the first place? Um, thus, the regenerate tribesmen somewhere where Christianity has yet to uh, has yet to go may be saved without ever knowing the name of Jesus. And uh, this kills evangelism, just like universalism does as there is no need to preach the gospel as the spirit regenerates apart from the preaching of the word. Uh, But as we've seen from scriptures last week, and I'll add to it this week, uh, this idea is totally false. So reading again from Romans uh, chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 11. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So here, Paul lays it out. Whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We aren't given any other means by which men are going to be saved in the scriptures. And ultimately, um, with his set of rhetorical questions there, how, how will they believe on him and who they've never heard? We know that they need to hear in order to be saved. Um, and I want to add one additional scripture that I think is helpful here. This is First Peter one, starting at verse 22. Seeing ye have been purified, ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory, all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, by the gospel, is preached unto you. So here Peter lays out, you have been born again, if you are born again. You have been born again by the word of God. It is the word of God uh, that uh, uh, that is the means by which the spirit causes us to be born again. Now, I have encountered people out there that uh, want to read this as a reference to Christ because we do know that Christ is the word of God. So they'd attempt to um, make this, well, well, Christ is the one that causes us to be born again, not necessarily the preaching of the word. But ultimately, I don't think that works for a couple reasons. Uh, first of all, in verse 25, uh, The underlying Greek word for word there is actually rhema. It's not the typical logos, which um, Christ is always referred to as the logos of God, not the rhema of God. And rhema actually means spoken word. So it would be what we would associate with preaching, um, the word being spoken. Um, Peter also makes an Old Testament reference here. For all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as a flower of grass. That comes from the Old Testament. And he specifically says, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And although we know that Christ was the word of God in the Old Testament, he didn't become the word of God. um, In that context, it would make more sense to read it as the preached word. And also, ultimately, this is this word is attached in verse 25 to the gospel. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So I think we can very safely take it as this is the preached word. And this preached word is what causes people to be born again. Are there uh, any questions before I move on to the next question? Any comments? All right then. Moving on to question seven, or not seven, we already did seven, question eight. Um, Could I get somebody to read paragraph three of the confession, chapter 20, paragraph three, because we'll be interacting with that. Yeah, sure. Paragraph
2: three.
1: Yes. Okay, go for it.
2: The revelation of the gospel unto sinners, made in diverse times and by sundry parts, with the addition of promises and precepts for the obedience required therein, as to the nations and persons to whom it is granted is merely of the sovereign will and good pleasure of God, not being annexed by virtue of any promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities, by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can do so. And therefore, in all ages, the preaching of the gospel has been granted unto persons and nations as to the extent or strengthening of
1: it in great variety according to the counsel of the will of God. Thank you, Nancy. All right. So question eight, uh, Waldron asks in regards to this, what two fundamental doctrines undergird the sovereignty of the special revelation of the gospel? And, uh, the two doctrines are total depravity and the freedom of God in salvation. Uh, in total depravity, man is unwilling to come to God and then thus can never improve his stature. As the confession says that, um, uh, It was never made by promise to, uh, the gospel was never made by promise to the due improvement of men's natural abilities by virtue of common light received without it, which none ever did make or can do so. Um, Man is not able to build himself up to to a position where he's worthy to obtain the knowledge of salvation. Thus, it has to rely on God who chooses. And um, the second portion, um, that God is free in salvation. Um, God, is, God is under no obligation to present the message of salvation. We who have sinned, we, if we were not to be saved, we would get everything we deserve. There's no unfairness in God's part if we're not to hear the message of salvation. God has graciously given it to us, unless we know and believe in our saved. But he was no, under no obligation to save anyone. He could have condemned all of humanity to hell, and he would have been perfectly just to do that. Um, and thus, he is, he is free to say, the gospel goes forth to this people at this time, but it may not go forth to this people at that time, because there is uh, God was never under o- any obligation to send it to them in the first place. Now, um, and we can actually see a, a biblical example of this in Acts 16.6. Um, Now, when they had gone throughout uh, Perga and the region of Galatia, this is Paul and uh, I think Barnabas, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So the Holy Spirit uh, told Paul and Barnabas that uh, you're not going to go to uh, Galatia, and ultimately they end up going into Greece instead, or not Galatia, um, Asia, Asia Minor, and they end up going into Greece instead. And there were people, no doubt, in that time before another missionary group was sent to them that died, and they never heard the message of salvation. And that's that's God's choice. He's able to do it. He directs, ultimately, where missionary efforts go and who hears. Now, um, there are a couple uh, biblical passages that people like to try to respond to this idea with. They like to bring up uh, Cornelius and Lydia, as examples of people who had a knowledge or were able to obtain a knowledge of uh, salvation purely because they were godly people, and ultimately, I don't think uh, that works. Um, for example, Acts 10, this is about Cornelius. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a, cent- a centurion of the band called the Italian Band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently fr- about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius, and then it goes on to describe the vision from there. Uh, but ultimately, we see here that while Cornelius was a God-fearing man, it doesn't say that the reason why he got the vision was because he was a God-fearing man. It just says that he then received a vision at some point. Um, There's nothing in here that um, makes it uh, plain that um, the reason he received the vision was because he was a godly man. And ultimately, Cornelius might have already been saved at this point. We know that in the Old Testament, saints are able to be saved. They have enough of the knowledge of the gospel to do so. Um, It doesn't give us any indication of what, Cornelius' status was aside for that he feared God, so we can probably safely assume that he was uh, he was saved at that point. And uh, the other example is Lydia, Acts sixteen, starting in verse thirteen. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And a certain man, or a certain woman named Lydia, a seller purple of the city of Thyatira which worship God heard us whose heart the Lord opened and that she attended under the things which were spoken of Paul. So Paul is out there preaching to the crowd and one of the women, Lydia, um, she hears, she's a worshiper of God and the Lord opens her heart. And uh, we can take that to mean that's, that's her, her salvation experience right there. Now, once again, it doesn't say that because she was a worshiper of God, that's how she earned the uh, ability that the Lord would open her heart to see this, um, to know this this truth. It just says that the Lord opened her heart. So it's reading into the text to say that, oh, well, she first was a worshiper of God and then she uh, uh, merited the knowledge of salvation. And ultimately, this is a, a pretty good um, place to prove Calvinism because she was a worshiper of God, at least in some sense. But even then the Lord needed to open her heart in order to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is actually implied in the text. The other stuff is not implied in the text. Uh, Before we move on to question nine, does anybody have any questions or comments? All right, question nine then. Explain why it is the Calvinist alone who is inoculated against errors which destroy missionary zeal. So uh, Waldron has a couple uh, couple areas that he goes over and then I wanna add one of my own at the end. So the first doctrine of Calvinism that uh, helps to inoculate against things that uh, undermine uh, missionary zeal is actually total depravity, that men are unable to come to God From the synergist perspective, um, not all synergists, but they're liable to get frustrated when their their efforts bear no fruit, because we as Calvinists go out, and while we know that God can save anybody, if we see no fruit, in some regards, we can understand why. But to the synergist who's expecting that, like, men can just freely choose of their own, and they go out and preach, and nobody comes, well, why isn't it that they're coming? Like, I've presented them this glorious truth that all men should want to take a part of why is it that none of them are doing so and it can be frustrating and this isn't necessarily um something like a a made-up example for example the famous reformed baptist missionary william carey labored for seven years in india before he saw a single convert seven years and I don't know if he ended up getting uh, frustrated in of himself or I don't I don't know, but he was obviously faithful and eventually it did bear fruit. But if you don't have that understanding of men are depraved and you go for seven years without seeing any fruit, you're liable to get discouraged at some point. It's like, am I doing something wrong? What's going on here? Yeah, it's helpful to see just as the CTOD the vision of the <laughs> it's helpful to
0: see these people are. You know, according to what we're seeing right now, me standing up there preaching a message they see as foolishness and them securing their sin, not wanting to be saved from it, it helps to see them as the valley of dry bones and me as just a mere man. It really helps because it, it, absol- it absolves me of every single thing I might hope in that is less than God. And that is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. If, I, if it was down to the prowess of the preacher and I was the preacher <laughs> I think it would despair, and I don't know how a guy like John, how uh, John, was his name? Oh, John Wesley? John Wesley, yeah. I mean, incredible that he kept going, but it makes a lot more sense that George Whitfield kept going because George Whitfield saw them as dead bones. He mm-hmm. saw God as their only hope, and his only hope was seeing a single soul saved, and that's a wonderful
1: thing. Yeah, and ultimately, that has to be exhausting from a, a synergistic perspective that... Yeah, that it's, it's by my efforts that this person is going to be saved because you'll always have to wonder. It's like, oh, if I had just said that one little thing, perhaps this person could be saved. And you're constantly thinking over what you've done and constantly doubting yourself. And that's exhausting. And at some point you very well might burn out. Um, but as the Calvinists, we know that while our efforts are not what they should be compared to the glorious God that we serve, that ultimately it is in his hands and if they will be saved, they will be saved. Um this uh a lack of understanding of total depravity actually can lead to pride. Um, for the evangelist that the synergistic evangelist that sees all these people not coming to the gospel, it's like, look at all these people that refuse to believe. Why are they not believing when I do? Oh well, in some way, maybe I'm better than them. Like, not that all synergists are gonna come to that um, conclusion, but we as fallen human, uh, humans have that inclination towards pride, and it very well could lead to that. And ultimately, that could lead to actual racism. And we saw that, or we see that in some of the missionary efforts from the colonial powers, like look at all these backward tribes here. Um, you know, um, clearly, Europe is so much more moral and stuff. We're, we're uh, so much more advanced than them. And ultimately that's just pride. If you understand total depravity, you understand that you were in no better of a state than they, you had a little bit more light based on the culture you lived in, but you still needed the grace of God just as much as that person that you're witnessing to. And thus there is no, there is no reason for pride. It's nothing in you. Um, the next thing that um, Dr. Waldron brings up is uh, God is sovereign and no one is owed salvation. Um, because that leads to the question, if um, somebody is owed salvation, uh, why would God create uh, people that are destined for hell? This is a question that's often thrown at us Calvinists because we believe in predestination. But ultimately, the, uh, unless you're an open theist, the synergist doesn't escape this question. Because ultimately, they have people that God created that God knew would go to hell. So they have to answer the question, too. And um, if one starts with the assumption that man is owed a chance at salvation, um, then you have to realize that uh, when many don't hear the gospel, um, that there's really uh, uh, one or two ways you can take it. That either God's standards are lower than we, we claim they are, that, well, if everybody's owed a chance at salvation and some don't hear the gospel, then it must not be that the gospel is required to salvation and you form fall again into a form of universalism, which we've already shown is not um, is not biblical. It's not correct. Or you can fall into the opposite error and uh, become angry with God because God was morally obligated to give salvation, at least the uh, the message of salvation to everyone, and he didn't. So that can lead to people complaining or grumbling against God. It's only the Calvinist that recognizes, well, well, not only the Calvinist, but um, it does inoculate against this error that well, men, not all men are, or men are not obligated to have the message of salvation, unless there is no injustice on God's part. And then the uh, the third thing that um, Dr. Waldron brings up is the gospel is the means of calling the elect, and the gospel doesn't need to be helped by anything. And this ultimately is the big problem of evangelicalism today, and how uh, mainstream evangelical churches do evangelism. Uh, for them, you can see it. The gospel is not enough. We need we need a show on stage to attract people. We need to make unbelievers laugh and make them feel comfortable to come into the church. To show that we're not judgmental. Uh, we don't want to offend anyone, so we aren't going to say anything controversial, and that'll that'll get them in and get them to stay. I see it
0: as uh, catering to the very hard and willing safe from exactly. only come, as you say, said, faith, not by hearing hearing by the word of God, that new nature is what they need to have formed in them, and you cannot do that. They can't do that by their will. I was saying just yesterday to Bruce and Lindsay how um, you are already seated in heavenly places. The new regenerate self is righteous enough to sit in the presence of God because it's doing so right now, and yet the remnants of your old nature is still strong enough to pull that into the mire of sin with it, and if that will, that is that strong. The sin is all you have. How are you going to ever do anything righteous, such as trust in Christ? you not. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So ultimately, you do see that in uh, evangelicalism, that uh, we have to use all these other means beyond the go- the pure preaching of the gospel in order to get people into the church. And doing those things will very well get people into your church. There are many mega churches out there that are successful in terms of numbers, but it's not ultimately going to get them to Christ. As as Rowan said, they need the message of the gospel. And we are not after numbers in our church. We're after souls and those are not identical. Church can be big, church can be small. It doesn't matter. What we want is as so much as possible every person in our church to be a believer and be saved. And the only way you're gonna do that is through the preaching of the gospel and um, preaching of the law too, so that they come to a knowledge of sin and that'll make people uncomfortable and the church in terms of numbers may not be as successful, but that is not what we're after. There's practices are a declaration that we don't really need God because we're relying on something that we can do without His help. Yes. And God will uh, honor that if you will. yes amen yeah ultimately we believe in a sovereign God who can and will bring his elect through the preaching of the gospel that's the means by which he's declared he will do so yes Nancy
2: however the preaching of the gospel is spread by um, right now the internet mm-hmm. The gospel is spread by missionaries the gospel is spread by the internet. The gospel is spread by speakers who, or should be, by speakers who have these big revivals and such as that. And the gospel is getting spread by all of these various things, so many more today through the internet, uh, through Wi-Fi mm-hmm. and all of that than there ever was in the past. Mm-hmm. So when you have a, a large group, no matter where it is, if the, if the gospel is being spread, that's our position. We're to get the word of the gospel out to as many people as we can get it out
1: to. Yes. And ultimately, there are appropriate means to do so, and there are inappropriate means to do so. Um, we shouldn't put unnecessarily unnecessary uh, stumbling blocks in front of people. We shouldn't be angry or vindictive or needlessly judgmental. Um, and discourage people from hearing the message of salvation. But ultimately, you can have the nastiest person present the gospel, and God may use that mean those means to be saved. Amen. Yes, um, but uh, it doesn't give us the right to change how we think people are saved or what means are actually prescribed in Scripture. The the means by which people will be saved is the preaching of the Word, whatever form that takes whether it be over the internet whether it be evangelists on the street whatever that is the means by which people will be saved it is no other as
0: I was heard it said uh, god can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick but we ought not intentionally hand god
1: a crooked exactly stick. we are in our evangelistic efforts to be as we are to adorn the gospel as much as possible through our gentle spirit through how we conduct ourselves but ultimately even if we fail to do that, God can still save people through our uh, our, our efforts, as um, imperfect as they may be. And then um, Waldron didn't explicitly bring out this point in this book, but I, uh, in his book, but I want to. Um, we as Calvinists, with our high view of God, should be doing all things for the glory of God. So if we go out and evangelize and see no fruits of our labor whatsoever that's perfectly fine from a Calvinistic perspective because we can take comfort in the fact that it was our service to God for which he was worthy. Um, and regardless of the outcome, we were, were serving him. And uh, that's, that is ultimately pleasing to him. And in fact, it's a testimony to the world how glorious the God we serve is when we go out day after day or we're, we're in the workplace, wherever, and we witness and we see no fruit, but we keep doing it. We're declaring that, the God that we serve is so worthy that regardless of the outcome, like this is, this is he's worthy to have this message proclaimed about who he is and how we come to be reconciled to him.
0: Yeah, you, uh, you preach only because you want, it's, it's a great thing to preach because you, you care about the souls of the lost, but if that is the only thing that makes it worth your while, you have to ask yourself, well, then is God worth your while regardless? Yep. Ought to be. Yep, it's, it's putting the, the cart before the horse to make the wicked souls a like, deep, chief end of everything you do. That's a wonderful, glorious thing. The sinner is saved, and we all love that because we ourselves have been saved from our sins, so we glory in that. But it's ultimately to the glory of God that's that's the purpose of creation. Winning the souls as a means to that, but if you highlight that so much that you're willing to transgress the way scripture says you should know go about it and
2: rebel against God, you're putting the
0: heart of the Lord. Of course. God is not glorified, like, yes, and you're likely not even going to save them from their sins, you're just going to save them to more sin and and yeah. uh and nonsense we see in evangelical churches. And you'll harden them in their sin, you'll convince them that they're saved, and that is the worst state, and that is perhaps why so many cultures in this country have become so degenerate, so quick, and so hard in their sins, we agree that perhaps has never been in this country. And ultimately, we have to recognize that God's doing something every time we're out faithfully in yes. the word, either he's hardening hearts or he's softening hearts. So we're not to um, put that before the Lords. I mean, we're faithfully preach the word because we have a great commission and it should be a, a joy to be out um, mm-hmm. preaching how we have peace and how we have salvation to the world. So, you know, you can't really worry about uh, the results. You're just called to be faithful and to preach the word. You
1: know? Exactly. Yeah, we, we are servants and we'll do what we're told. And the outcome of that is to God. We can scatter the seed, but the Lord of the harvest is the one that gives the growth. And it's his choice whether or not he wants to see growth or not. Um, the two greatest commandments, as Jesus tells us, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And then the second afterwards is to love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love them and to seek the best for them so that they might be saved. But ultimately, our God, love for God has to be more and it's, it's to his glory, and that should be the primary focus, not the only focus necessarily. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. if you can separate that from the glory of God. But it is definitely the primary focus. Uh, did anybody have any additional questions or comments before we move on to paragraph four? All right. In that case, could I get somebody to read paragraph four for me? Only sufficient there Yet, that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, according to the there is moreover necessary and effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life, without which no other means will affect their conversion. On the so on All right, thank you, Ron. Uh, so for question ten, it says illustrate the relationship between the power of the gospel and the power of spirit, the spirit in conversion. Um, so as we've seen throughout uh, these two lessons, uh, the gospel is sufficient in of itself to save, in the sense of it contains the necessary knowledge for one to be saved. Um, however, just because it's sufficient in the knowledge doesn't mean that people will be saved. Why? because they actually need to believe it. And uh, that shows us that it's apart from the spirit working on someone that um, or apart from the spirit working on someone, they will not come to salvation. So uh, the gospel is sufficient in one sense, but not sufficient in um, all senses, because we believe in total depravity, that man in his fallen state has no desire to come to God and no ability to change that desire. It is necessary through the preaching of the gospel uh, that the spirit work in order to bring man to spiritual life. And then Waldron has a, a helpful analogy here uh, with uh, a light bulb and electricity. A light bulb is sufficient, in a sense, to light an entire room. It's all the material that you, you need to light a room. However, without electricity running through that light bulb, that room is going to be dark. It needs something, in another sense, additional to light the room. And that's analogous to the Holy Spirit. We can preach the gospel. Um, and we, But without the Spirit's work on the hearts of the people that hear, they will not come to that saving light. Um, did anybody have any uh, questions or comments about that last part? Just one one, far from having free will, every time God makes man more
0: free to exercise his will, even farther from God, and plunges deeper into the gravity. Yep. And there is nothing in and of himself that will turn himself to the Lord, because he loves sin. It is if you accept the fact that this fallen man loves sin, it is almost tantamount to blasphemy to suggest that he can therefore turn himself to God as God is the opposite of the thing he loves. If we confess that, and Scripture says it, you have to confess that they need a supernatural miracle outside of themselves to turn themselves to it.
1: Anything? Oh. I
0: was just going to say, there's there's more than being book smart. More yes. Than being yeah. More than studying and listening to all the great theologians and hearing and understanding what they're saying, it takes the Holy Spirit into your heart to open it up to break that man's spirit to accept. The
1: mm-hmm. We read in James that even the demons believe and shudder. They they know the truths about God, but they don't they don't have faith. They don't trust Him um, as we are we are called to do. I can, I can know the gospel intellectually, but if I don't believe it, truly trust the God who gave it to me, it's useless. Um, all right. Well, with that, I'm done. Uh, is there any final comments? All right. In that case, let's close in a word of prayer. Our righteous father, we give you thanks that you have presented the gospel to us, Father. We pray that uh, for any member of this visible congregation that uh, may not be saved, that you would, by your Spirit, work on them, that they would be saved and indeed come to the truth. And uh, we pray, Father, that um, we would be edified by the word preached today and that um, you would uh, help us to uh, worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you.